Section 29 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 13. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cal Brummy. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 13, Section 29. George Eliot. 1819 to 1880 by Charles Waldstein. To George Eliot will always have to be assigned a prominent place in the history of the literature of the 19th century as a foremost novelist, poet and social philosopher. Mary Ann, or as she subsequently spelt her Christian name, Marion Evans, was born at South Farm, a mile from Griff in the parish of Calton in Warwickshire, on November 22, 1819. Her father, the prototype of Adam Bede, was Robert Evans of Welsh origin, who started life as a carpenter but soon became a land agent in Warwickshire. This position implies great responsibilities and demands thorough business capacities, as well as firmness and trustworthiness of character in his relations to his employers as well as his subordinates. He was entrusted with the management of the extensive estates of five great noblemen and landowners in the county of Warwickshire. He was thus a man of considerable importance and power in the country, and would hold a social position ranking with the highest professional classes of the neighbourhood. The position of her father gave her the opportunity of gaining considerable insight into the lives and characters of English people of every class in the country, and from its neutral height, between the great landlord and the farmer, down to the farm labourer, she could command the horizon line of all these lives, realise their habits, their aspirations and sufferings, and command its extent as well as its limitations. The country, the fields, the garden about Griff House where her childhood was spent, as well as the village with its inhabitants, with whom, through her mother as well as her father, she came in contact, all stimulated her loving and sympathetic observation and formed that background of experience in the youthful mind out of which subsequently rose, with strong spontaneity and truthful precision of design, the characters and scenes of her novels. They will ever remain the classical expositions of English provincial life in literature. The upright strength and pertinacity of her characters, as well as the insight into practical life and the life of men, were no doubt derived from her father and from the intimate intercourse with him for so many years of the most important formative period of her life. Her mother was a housewife of the old-fashioned type, whose health was always poor and who died when Marion was about 15 years of age. She is supposed to be portrayed in Mrs Hackett in Amos Barton. She seems to have been a woman with ready wit, a somewhat sharp tongue, an undemonstrative but tender-hearted nature. In many respects she seems also to have been the model for that masterpiece of character drawing, Mrs Poyser. Though Marion had two sisters, her brother, Isaac Evans was her playmate. The youthful relation between brother and sister was very much like that of Tom Tulliver and Maggie in The Mill on the Floss, no doubt the most autobiographical of her novels, as regards at least the drawing of Maggie's character. Marion was at first sent to a school in the neighbouring Nuneaton, and at a very early age she taught at Sunday school, which may have instilled a magisterial bias into her mind from the very outset. At the age of 12, she proceeded to a school at Coventry, kept by the Mrs Franklin, 
which employed considerable reputation in the neighbourhood. She remained in this school for three years. Beyond elementary school duties, she devoted much of time to English composition, French and German. Her life was then rather solitary, moved by strong inner religious convictions, upon which she dwelt with passionate fervour. Her religious views were at first simply those of the Church of England, then those of the Low Church, and then became anti-supernatural. The second phase was no doubt strongly influenced by her aunt, Mrs Elizabeth Evans, the Derbyshire Methodist, the prototype of Dinah Morris in Adam Bede. The earnest, almost lugubrious conception of life, which she formed in these times, and which subsequent years and experiences only intensified, no doubt gave the keynote to her whole temperament and genius. It produced in her that supreme development of the idea of duty and compassion for human suffering, which elevates the tone of her writing with a lofty conception of life, enables her to penetrate into the feelings and aspirations of all classes, and while it widened the range of her sympathy, never did so at the cost of genuineness or intensity of feeling. At the same time, this serious keynote, though it was not opposed to humour, the growth of which it even favoured, led to some limitations in the harmonious development of her artistic nature, notably in that it counteracted the sense for the playful and joyous side of life. The eternal conflict between Hellenism and Hebraism, between the vine wreath and the crown of thorns, was not reconciled by her, but led to the suppression or defeat of Hellenism. The true, the joyous spirit of Hellenism with its ideals of beauty and happiness in life never really possessed her soul. In her own words, she has put this eternal dualism. Forevermore, with grander resurrection than was feigned, of Attila's fierce Huns, the soul of Greece conquers the bulk of Persia, the maimed form of calmly joyous beauty marble-limbed, yet breathing with the thought that shaped its limbs, looks mild reproach from out its open grave at creeds of terror, and the vine-wreathed god fronts the pierced image with the crown of thorns. Only in the tragic manifestation of the Greek mind, above all in an Aeschylus, did she find true resonance to the passionate beats of her god-loving and world-renouncing heart. Yet more and more, as her mind grew and severed itself from the traditional beliefs of her childhood, with which, however, she ever remained in deepest sympathy, did this love of God and renunciation of the world mean love of man and the tolerance of weakness, the pity with suffering and the active effort to help to rectify and to improve. The one element in Hellenism which she adopted and clung to, and which, as a supporting wall, she added to the whole structure of her more Hebraistic beliefs and ideals, was the worship of sanity. This worship only intensified the tolerance of the unsound, the pity for the diseased and distorted and miserable. And though she never became a professed positivist, it was no doubt the response which Comte's philosophy gave to these cravings that made his views ultimately most congenial to her. The true and independent development of her mind began when, after the death of her mother, she took charge of Griff House for her father, but especially when in 1841 her father retired from his active duties and settled at Foleshill near Coventry. It was here, while taking lessons in Latin and Greek from Mr Sheepshanks, and also devoting herself to music, 
that she formed the friendship with Mr and Mrs Charles Bray of Coventry and their kinsman, Mr Charles C. Hennell, the Unitarian philosopher and writer. These people, deeply interested in philosophy and literature, and important contributors to the philosophico-religious literature of the day, responded fully to the mental needs of George Eliot. Out of this intellectual affinity grew a friendship which lasted through life. They also introduced her to the philosophical and critical literature of Germany, and it was through them that she began in 1843 her first literary task, the translation of David Strauss's Life of Jesus, which had been begun by Miss Brabant, who became Mrs Charles Hennell. The task of translating Strauss's great work, which occupied three years of her life, was followed by work of the same nature, which, though not as taxing as the life of Christ, must still have called upon thought and perseverance to a high degree. It was The Essence of Christianity by the German philosopher Ludwig Feuerbach. These works, which stand on the borderline between philosophy and religion, led her by a natural development into the domain of pure philosophy, so that the next more extensive task which she undertook, but to our knowledge never completed, was a translation of Spinoza's Ethics. She was now fairly at the age of 27, launched in her literary career, though as yet it was on the side of science and religion, and not of art. The essays which belonged to the following period, together with her editorial occupation, again formed a transition from the more scientific character of her writing to the domain of pure literature. And though these works belonged to the field of criticism, it was criticism as applied to pure literature, fiction and biography, and thus brought her inherently ponderous and theoretical mind by natural stages, from analysis and speculation to the more imaginative sphere of synthesis and creation. This early theoretical and scientific direction of her occupation and thought may have produced that fault in her later writing with which she has often been reproached. It may have made her style and diction clumsy and pedantic. On the other hand, it was a most excellent training for the future writer of even fiction, for it exercised the mind in gaining full mastery over thought, in recognising and defining the nicest and most delicate shadings of meaning and of expression, in insisting upon their logical sequence, and thus impressing upon the author the rudiments of exposition and composition, in extending and enriching the domain of knowledge and fact, and finally in producing and training the force of intellectual sympathy, which sharpens as well as intensifies insight into life and character, and gives to the mind that pliancy which directs the feeling heart to beat in sympathy with all forms of experiences, desires and passions, however far the lives and personalities may be removed from the author who constructs or describes them. In 1849, the death of her father threw her into a state of deepest depression. It was then that her kind friends the Brays took her for a tour on the continent, to Italy and Switzerland. She remained at Geneva in the family of the artist d'Albert for eight months, where she no doubt found congenial local associations, for the shores of the Lake of Geneva, haunted by the spirits of Calvin, Rousseau, Voltaire, Madame de Stael, Gibbon, Byron and Shelley, seem bound up with the world-stirring thought as no other place in Europe. Upon her return to England, she made her home with the Brays at Rose Hill for about a year, and then accepted the offer of Dr John Chapman to become sub-editor of the Westminster Review, and to make her home in his family. 
She here entered a circle of the most prominent literary men and women of the day, and among these she became an intimate friend of Herbert Spencer, John Oxenford, James and Harriet Martineau, George Henry Lewes and others. Emerson she had met before at Rose Hill. Besides her arduous sub-editorial work, she contributed several remarkable papers to the review. Among these are Carlyle's Life of Stirling and Margaret Fuller in 1852. Women in France, Madame de Tablet, 1854. Evangelical Teaching, Dr. Cumming, 1855. German Wit, Heinrich Heine. Silly Novels by Lady Novelists. The Natural History of German Life, 1856. Worldliness and Otherworldliness, The Poetry of Young, in 1857. It was in 1854 that occurred the great event in her life. She joined George Henry Lewes as his wife, though the latter's wife was still alive. Lewes was separated from his first wife, though circumstances made it impossible for him to get a divorce. From that moment, George Eliot remained the most faithful and devoted wife to Lewes and mother to his children, until his death in 1878. She united her life with that of Lewes after due and full deliberation, and with a thorough weighing of consequences and duties. But that she felt the deepest regret in that her complete union was not in accordance with the established laws of the society in which she lived, is evident from all her letters and writings, and though it need not have led to her marriage with her late husband Mr Cross, the opportunity afforded of showing her respect to the established rules of matrimonial life must certainly have made it easier for her to form a new alliance after the death of her first husband. With Luz she went to Germany, living for some time at Berlin and Weimar, while he was writing his Life of Goethe, and she was working at her translation of Spinoza's Ethics, and was contributing some articles on German literature. Upon their return they settled in London, finally in the Priory, North Bank, in the northwest of the metropolis, which was for many years a salon of the London literary world. The Sunday afternoons of this remarkable couple united all the talent and genius, residents or foreign visitors. One might meet in one and the same afternoon Charles Darwin, Robert Browning, Tennyson, Richard Wagner, Joachim the violinist, Huxley, Clifford, Du Maurier and Turgenev. Luz, the most brilliant and versatile conversationalist of his day, gave life and freedom to these meetings, but the intellectual and moral centre always remained George Eliot, with her soft, sweet voice, her clear intonation, her friendly and encouraging smile, lighting up as by a contrast the earnestness of her serious and large features, which resembled those of Savonarola, whose character she has drawn in such strong lines in Romola. But the quality of searching sympathy and benignant humour so remarkable in her writings, gave the warmth of kindness and cordiality to these formidably intellectual meetings. The present writer remembers with grateful piety how, when he was a very young man struggling to put a crude thought into presentable form before these giants of thought and letters, she would divine his meaning even in its embryonic uncouthness of expression, and would give it back to him and to them in a perfect and faultless garb, so that in admiring and worshipping the woman, he would be pleased with his own thoughts and would think well of himself. 
It is this sympathetic and unselfish helpfulness of great and noble minds which gives confidence and increases the self-esteem of all who come in contact with them. No wonder that one often saw and heard of a great number of people, young girls or young men, who by letter or in person sought help and spiritual guidance from her and went away strengthened by her sympathy and advice. Her first attempt at fiction was made in her 37th year, in September 1856. The account of this is best shown in her own words, here given among the extracts from her writings. Her first story was a short one called The Sad Fortunes of the Rev Amos Barton. This was followed by Mr Gilfield's Love Story and Janet's Repentance. And soon there was that remarkable volume called Scenes of Clerical Life. Luz and she and the world all realised that she was a true novelist and from that moment she directed her energies to the production of those works which will ever live in spite of all changes of fashions and modes of storytelling, classical specimens of English fiction. In rapid succession now followed Adam Bede in 1858, The Mill on the Floss in 1860, Silas Marner in 1861, Romola in 1863, Felix Holt the Radical in 1866, The Poem, The Spanish Gypsy in 1868, Jubal and Other Poems in 1870, Middlemarch in 1872, Daniel Deronda in 1876, and her last work, The Impressions of Theophrastus Such, which was not published till after the death of Lewes, which occurred in 1878. She married Mr Cross in May 1880. She died on December 22, 1880. To lead to the fuller understanding of George Eliot's works, it was necessary to sketch in broad outlines of the growth of her life and personality. As a writer, she was not only a novelist, but also a poet, and above all, a social philosopher. Her ethical bias is so strong, moreover, that one cannot understand her as a novelist or a poet, unless one has grasped her social philosophy and the all-pervading and ever-present influence it has upon her mind and writing. In her delineation of character and depiction of scenes, especially those of rural and domestic life, truthful rendering is to her the supreme duty, and one need but open the scenes of clerical life, Adam Bede, the mill on the floss, Silas Marner, and Middlemarch on any page, to realise the fullness of truth with which she has painted. At the time of their appearance, not only were the persons and the environment identified with the originals she had in her mind, but as lasting types they tallied exactly with people and local life known to each English reader. This truthful rendering was also conceived by her as a primary duty of the novelist. We would refer the reader to what, in an essay, she says of the English peasant in fiction, and would recall her own words in the same essay. Quote, a picture of human life such as a great artist can give, surprises even the trivial and the selfish into that attention to what is apart from themselves, which may be called the raw material of sentiment. Art is the nearest thing to life. It is a mode of amplifying experience and extending our contact with our fellow men beyond the bounds of our personal lot. All the more sacred is the task of the artist when he undertakes to paint the life of the people. Falsification here is far more pernicious than in the more artificial aspects of life. End quote. 
Another interesting passage is one containing an estimate of Dickens, in which she considers the Oliver Twists, Joes and Nancys terrible and pathetic pictures of London life. Quote, and if Dickens had been able to give us their psychological character, their conception of life and their emotions with the same truth as their idiom and manners, his books would be the greatest contribution to art ever made to the awakening of social sympathies. End quote. George Eliot might thus be classified as one of the greatest, if not the greatest, realist of the analytical or psychological order, but this would, to our mind, be a one-sided and incomplete estimate of the chief character in her writing and genius. Truthful rendering of life and character may have been one of the chief motives to composition and a fundamental requisite to the art of her fiction, but it remained a means to a further end, the ultimate end of her writing, as it no doubt was, the fundamental stimulus to her imagination and design. And this end and motive make her an idealist and not a realist in fiction. The direction in which this idealism goes, we have indicated in the lines we have italicised in the passages we quote from her, and is to be found in the ethical motive below and beyond all her thought and composition, the predominance of the social philosophy in her fiction and poetry to which we have already referred. We will dismiss the coarse and caricatured distinction between realism and idealism in which the one is supposed to render truthfully whatever is, without any principle of selection or composition, while the other starts with preconceived notions of the ought-to-be, be it from the point of view of formal beauty or spiritual harmony, and approve the facts that are. Art, and the novel above all, which deals with life at once so clear and familiar to us, and so perplexingly manifold and varied, as constantly to elude choice and design, can neither forego truth nor unity of design. But in the novelist's attitude toward human life, there are two distinct points of view from which a new classification of novelists might be made. The position given to ethics, the moral laws in the presentation of life. The laws of human conduct are so essential to the relation of man to man that the fundamental question as to what position ethics holds in our narrative cannot be ignored. The novelist must have decided whether he is going to consider its claims in the primary structure of his novel and in the creation and development of characters, or not. Is he going to prepare the groundwork of artistic labour with a view to ethical design or pure artistic design? It may be said that the best work requires both, but still, insofar as the one is heeded more than the other, will the writer be an idealist or a realist in this sense? The idealist will focus his view of the characters, their experiences and sufferings and surroundings from a view of moral fitness and design. The realist will find the design and composition, the harmony which all art needs in the characters, in the scenes, in the life itself and the inner organic relation of the parts to the whole. One leads to the best idealism, the other to the best realism. The one produces a George Eliot the other a Guy de Maupassant. This realist ignores the general fitness of things, the moral law, and says, this character is interesting in itself. This situation is amusing, curious, striking, or terrible. They are worth depicting without any question as to their relation to social or moral ideas. Guy de Maupassant takes characters and situations and depicts them with consummate art. He never troubles himself about general moral fitness. 
We never know what his moral and social ideals are, nor whether he has any at all. Jane Austen is interested in her characters, in the tone and range of ideas of the period and the society in which she lives, the types of life, and she draws them with consummate art. But though we are left in no doubt in her case as to the good and the bad, and though the good generally prevails and the bad is defeated, these are not subordinated to a clear conception of an ideal social order, without which the characters and the story could not have been conceived and developed, as is always the case with George Eliot. Gwendolyn Harleth, Felix Holt, Maggie, Dorothea, Lydgate, the life and surroundings of these figures all bear a fixed relation to the social ideals of the author, and it is in this relation that she conceives and develops them. Nay, it is for the purpose of illustrating and fixing this that she creates them at all. Strange as it may sound, insofar Jane Austen might be called a realist and be classed with Guy de Maupassant, while George Sand, with whom she has so much similarity of spirit, is by contrast an idealist. It is a difference in the initial methods of dealing with the life in fiction. It is not enough for George Eliot to present an interesting character, to follow up its fate and growth, to force the reader into sympathy, to make him hope for success or fear failure, nor even to show the struggle with the surroundings to depict interesting and complex situations and centres. Her writings always depend upon a primary postulate, and to this postulate all characters, scenes and situations are ultimately subordinated. This postulate is the ideal social order as a whole, the establishment of sane and sound social relations in humanity, the development and progress of human society towards such an ideal of general human life. All characters and situations, all scenes of life, whether clerical or provincial, whether of the present or of the past, and this may here be a grave fault, are developed and viewed by her in their relation to this general standard of ideal society, how far they fit into this general harmony, and failing this, how far they can in her stories be made to fit more fully, or they are left to a more tragic end which emphasises the facts of their unfitness. Herein lies her distinctive character as a novelist, a point in which her delineation differs from most of the other great novelists, from a Balzac and a Flaubert, a George Sand, a Thackeray and a Dickens, a Turgenev and an early Tolstoy. I do not mean to say that these novelists had not a social idea at the foundation of their constructive imagination, but it did not play that essential part in their conception and working out of characters and plots. It was not ever present in their minds while they were describing characters, feelings, incidents and situations, as it appears to have been with George Eliot. Her philosophical and ethical bias thus manifests itself in that there was an idea of general social fitness and happiness, modifying and directing her representation of individual life and character. To understand this social ideal of a rational and essentially sane world, we must conceive her as an expression of the spirit of the age out of which she grew, and she will thus hold a place not only as a novelist, but as a pregnant and significant exponent of the thought of the third quarter of the 19th century. The time in which her mind was formed is marked on the side of social ethics, in that a broad and powerful humanitarian wave spread over English life and thought. Negatively, it manifested itself in that it was a period of storm and stress toward the birth of tolerance. 
tolerance with all forms of belief and even unbelief. In the English church itself, it was the period of clear accentuations of shades of belief that differed to a very marked degree from one another. The Church of Rome was brought nearer to the Anglican believer and was robbed of its apocalyptic horrors by a Newman and a Manning. A definite political act was the Irish Church Act. But an special feature of this tolerance was the social recognition of agnosticism in its scientific aspect through a Darwin and its more ethical aspects through a Mill, a Herbert Spencer and a Matthew Arnold, while divines of the English church itself, like Stanley, Morris, Kingsley and Jowett, bridged over the gaps between dogmatism and agnosticism. The repeal of the Test Act, according to which the signing of the 39 Articles was a condition for obtaining a scholarship or fellowship, abolished all disqualifications from free thinkers at the great universities. Quakers and Jews had before been admitted to Parliament and now took prominent and leading places. But more positively, the philosophy of Auguste Comte with its English exponents, especially Mill, impressed the religious feeling of humanitarianism. There had been a wave of this before, a wave the commotion of which was felt even in our days. It was the humanitarianism of Rousseau under which George Sand stood, but this differs in a marked manner from that of our friend. With Rousseau it was deductive, based upon the inalienable rights of man, of the individual, a deductive sociology. In our times it was essentially guided by the prevailing spirit and methods of thought of Charles Darwin, Mill, Herbert Spencer, Huxley, Clifford and Matthew Arnold, with the regenerated and refined sense of truth which they have given to the world. It has thus led to an inductive sociology and inductive humanitarianism, freed from all the romantic character and admixture, essentially sober and sane, though nonetheless passionate and deep-seated. The last wave of Rousseau-esque feeling filtered through German sources to us in Carlisle and Ruskin. But this mode of thought was foreign to George Eliot. She disliked all forms of exaggeration. She has always clear in her mind the sane and sober ideals of a society based upon the truthful observation and recognition of its wants and needs. The claims of truth, the claims of charity and unselfishness are supreme. To this ideal the individual must subordinate himself if he wishes to be happy and noble, beloved and honoured, must have, quote, that recognition of something to be lived for beyond the mere satisfaction of self which is to the moral life what the addition of a central ganglion is to animal life, end quote. Pure applied psychology and knowledge of the cœur humain, which have actuated so many great novelists, the careful and studied development of an individual life and character, as such within its surroundings, were not enough to absorb the desires of George Eliot's efforts in fiction. Still less mere striking incidents and the engrossing consequences and sequences as they push on in the plot of a story, but the cœur humain and the incidents in life are viewed in their relation to society as a whole, to social ideals. She is thus an idealistic and an ethical novelist. Even in her poetry, this bias manifests itself, and here, from an artistic point of view, the effect is often more disturbing than in her novels. For in poetry, the purely artistic, emotional and lyrical aspect is more important and essential, 
and any general and impersonal idea counteracts the reality of the characters, the mood and the passion. Thus, in her longest and greatest poem, The Spanish Gypsy, the feelings and expressions put into the mouth of Fadalma and Zarka are the 19th century thoughts and feelings of a George Eliot, and lose their intermediate truthfulness and convincing power from being thus expressed by fictitious persons, while the personalities themselves, their thoughts and feelings, do not strike one with a sense of reality because they express views which sound anachronistic and have not their proper local colouring. In spite of some beautiful shorter poems, passages and lines, she fails when criticised as a lyrical poetess, nor will her poems stand faultless when judged from the epic point of view. But if there be any justification, which we hold there is, for didactic poetry, poetry which calls in artistic emotion to impress truths and moral laws, then she will always hold a prominent place in this sphere. Stradivarius and the positivist hymn will, together with Matthew Arnold's self-dependence, rank among the finest types of didactic poems of our age. Though at times her ethical bias has obtruded itself out of place and may have counteracted her certainty of touch in drawing lifelike character, as for instance in the construction of Daniel Deronda's personality, it has, on the whole, not prevented her from giving full play to her marvellous power of clear and deep insight into life and of sensuous description. In studying life she had learned observation in the scientific inductive school and had thus acquired, with minuteness of perception, the clear-sighted and unprejudiced intellectual justice of vision which enabled her to appreciate fully and to grasp the inner core of all the characters, motives and passions which her command over her thoughts and language and her docile pen enabled her to fix in so masterly a manner. But these faculties would not have been enough to lead to her creation of human types had she not possessed to that intense and exalted degree the power of feeling which gave the initial stimulus to her penetration of the human heart and its passions, and which her intellectual control converted into all-encompassing and all-pervading sympathy. She was, after all, what Elizabeth Browning expressed in the pregnant phrase, quote, a large-brained woman and a large-hearted man, end quote. Nay, this sympathy was so intense and leading a feature of her genius that it again serves to establish a distinct general classification of novelists. Like great actors, great writers of fiction may be classified, according to their mode of rendering the life they study, as subjective and objective interpreters. The former are intellectually so wide and emotionally so responsive that their great souls and minds grasp and assimilate, absorb for the time being all the different natures which they portray. They thrill with them, they become them. The objective artists possess more the painter's and sculptor's attitude of mind. They eliminate self completely during the period of observation and enter, through the fullness and delicacy of their perceptions, into the lives and characters they depict. For the time, they see only the object of their study and they reproduce it with clear and dispassionate touch. This is the case with Balzac, Turgenev, Thackeray and Dickens. The objective method is the safest and least likely to produce faults in drawing which make the characters at times inconsistent and fall out of their parts, but the subjective method may at times attain depth of insight and fullness of passion and veracity which lies hidden from the dispassionate draftsmen and impersonators. 
The Brontes had this subjective penetration to the highest degree, but they had not, on the other hand, the inductive and scientific training of George Eliot, which sobered down and made more objective, as it made more humorous, the sympathetic impersonations in her stories. Above all, the purely emotional subjectivity of George Eliot was counteracted by the passion for the general ethical and the social ideal which we have already considered as playing so essential a part in her mind. Upon this we must take our stand in order to appreciate her leading method of composition, which can be traced, we venture to believe, through all her novels. Starting with a well-defined ideal of social fitness for this world, the harmony in life towards which all action, effort and individuality must tend, the problem which each novel sets itself to solve is the reconciliation of the conflict arising out of the unfitness of the leading characters, the hero or heroine as we may call them, as measured by this ideal. The want of harmony between their characters, aspirations and ambitions, their views of life and on the other hand the surroundings in which they live. The Greek tragedians, Shakespeare and all the great dramatists have ever dealt with this central struggle between man and society. But they started with this fact and had merely the artistic aim of evoking sympathy and pity in the audience because of this tragic struggle, the powerful and perfect representation of which became the final aim of their artistic endeavour. With George Eliot, the process of adaptation, the resolution of the discord, and if not the establishment of harmony, then the clear and impressive indication of the best way to its establishment is the real motive and end of her writing. There is in her no great tragic fatalism which makes the art of the Greek dramatist so deeply and overwhelmingly tragic. Each one of her leading characters is at fault when viewed in the light of the healthy social ideal. In the exposition of the character, the fault will be shown up strongly. The hero will either be developed into greater social perfection or the tragic end will impress upon the reader the disease and its remedy, the bane and its antidote. The social failings and shortcomings which stand in the way of this harmony are grouped by her into two leading faults of a general nature. The discord between the individual and selfish and the general and altruistic. Between thoughtless social materialism and conformity and questioning originality and spiritual revolt between conventionality and originality, between common sense and prophetic farsightedness, between the Philistine and the artistic, the humdrum worker and the world reformer, the materialist and the dreamer. The one looks down before him on the ground and ignores the heights beyond and the clear sky above and in his heavy-footed advance shoves the sky-gazer aside and walks over him when he has fallen. The other gazes at the heights and the stars and spurns the clodden soil, tripping over them, nay, slipping in the mud. They each ignore one another, and the world in which each lives, or they despise each other and their respective goals and aims. Now, in all her novels, this problem is repeated and a solution is attempted. Over and over again, she presents this situation as the central point in the composition of her novels, in different layers of society in most varied characters, and the understanding of this is key to the understanding of George Eliot's works. She either brings it out in presenting two central figures as the contrasts which represent either faulty extreme, or one figure as opposed to the surroundings, 
or both these means are used to impress the central fact. We shall take one pregnant instance to illustrate this. Daniel Deronda has been estimated and criticised chiefly as a novel in which the Jewish question has been discussed by her in a dramatic manner. That it deals powerfully with this question is no doubt true, but the Jewish question is but a side issue, no doubt appealing to her deep sympathies and sense of justice, but it is not the central motive to the story, nor the artistic keystone of the novel as constructed. The central figure in that story is Gwendolyn Hartleth, who ought properly to have given her name to the novel. The contrasting figure at the other extreme is Mordecai the Jew, and Daniel is the intermediary figure, almost figurehead, between these two extremes. The personality which I'm sure set her sympathetic intellect and imagination throbbing into artistic creation was Gwendolyn. As an ordinary though beautiful young lady of English society, in her rank what Hetty Sorrel and Rosamond Vincy are in theirs, she is the clod-born, materialistic and hopelessly selfish representative of the unsocial member of a society in which ideas and ideals are unknown and in which blind impulse, feebly directed by prejudice and tradition, petty vanity and greed, at most personal ambition, are the motives to action and produce the discord and misery which surround even those who live in affluence. Her beauty, her position in the family, her whole education have kept from her every higher ideal, all semblance of an ideal, and all altruism and feeling for or with her fellow men. Her world in the opening of the story is the most contracted world of a small self, with a pervading passion out of all proportion to its extent, in which the desires whirl round and round this little circle in hideous compression. Now the fundamental problem of the story is, how can this little selfish and materialistic nature, which only realises the things before its desiring eyes and grasping touch, be made large, unselfish and idealistic, so that it reaches out beyond and above the world of self, into the regions of great ideas, in which the individual is completely submerged, and that through this wholesome straining of the heart and of sympathetic power, through this realisation and love of the ideal, it may learn to love and pity, and think for and in mankind and all men and women. And this process of artistic development of character is sensuously and convincingly represented in this novel. The reader enters sympathetically into the little soul of that beautiful girl at the very beginning of the story. And in her, he passes through all the phases until, without any forced hiatus, he sees before him, at the end, the purified and enlarged Gwendolyn, who has learned her ennobling lesson in the great school of suffering. It is perhaps the greatest achievement in her art. The more definite question is, how can such a girl realise the great world of ideas? The answer is, it must come through the heart, through the emotions and not the intellect. The intellect will be widened and matured after her personality has been thrilled. She must fall in love with a man who is the impersonation of an idea, whose whole existence centres round a great desire far removed from the petty world of self in which she has lived, nay, opposed to it, in direct contrast to it. This impersonation is presented in Daniel Deronda, and the fault in the book is that George Eliot's theoretical bias has been too strong for her, and in her eagerness to make him the bearer of an idea, 
to the central figure of the story, she has sacrificed the realistic drawing of Daniel, who is an impersonation at the cost of flesh and blood. Given the fact that Daniel must in his personality represent some unselfish idea, the question was what actual idea, great in extent and enough to fill a man's mind and soul, should be chosen? The difficulty here arose that if George Eliot had chosen some purely imaginary topic, it would have lacked reality and would have moved neither Gwendolen nor the reader into sympathy. If, on the other hand, she had taken some stirring question of the day, the question as such would have engrossed the interest and attention of the reader and would no longer have been subordinated to the chief artistic purpose it has in the story. As it is, to many, the Jewish question, as treated and suggested in the novel, has itself engrossed the attention of readers and has diverted their minds from the main artistic gist of the story. But to the ordinary English reader, the subject of Jewish social life and aspirations was sufficiently remote. Nay, so narrow are the sympathies and the intellectual horizon of many cultivated Englishmen that though they can be interested in the lives of gypsies and farm labourers, they cannot, quote, screw up an interest in those Jews, end quote. To Daniel, however, it was a real, stirring and great idea to which he wished to devote his life. Now, in order that Gwendolyn should realise in herself such a great, impersonal idea, she had to fall in love with the man whose life they filled, and through her heart and her love for him, it would reach her mind and raise her thoughts. Daniel, again, the man she loves, is contrasted with the narrow and selfish man, the hardened and crystallised type of another social world, consuming itself in its own self-love. All Gwendolyn's experiences, directly or indirectly, tend to bring about this development of her soul. A striking scene in this sense is her interview with Klezmer, the genuine and thorough musician devoted to his art and work. And when she comes out of the final soul's tragedy, we feel that the woman has stood the test of fire and has realised the greatness and overwhelming vastness of the spiritual world. G. H. Lewes, to whom the writer communicated this conception of Daniel Deronda, assured him that he had grasped the central idea which George Eliot had in her mind and the actual history in the story's construction. Gwendolyn's counterpart, and there are many in George Eliot's books, is Dorothea in Middlemarch. She starts with great and extraordinary ideas and must, through life and suffering, realise the moral justification of the simple and commonplace in life. The contrasting types illustrating this central point can be found in every work. Dorothea and Rosamond on the one side, original, spiritual, striving as commonplace selfishness, and Dorothea and Ladislaw as heavy, serious, intellectual morality and light playful artistic freedom on the other. Lydgate, with his great reformatory ideas, slowly enfeebled and annihilated in his Samson-like vigour by the pretty, selfish, shallow-souled Rosamond of provincial worldliness. Gwendolyn is also contrasted with Myra. In Adam Bede, again, Dinah and Hetty present the same contrasts as do Tito, Malema and Romola, Esther and Felix Holt. Maggie Tulliver and her brother Tom, the spirit of revolt in Maggie and the hard conventionality of respectability in her brother Tom, are strongly marked types of this kind. Maggie's conflict with her narrow and commonplace surroundings and their conventional respectability are typified in the mill. 
it is a wonderful touch of artistic suggestion that she and her brother are finally submerged in the mill, carried away by the flood. This novel reflects more thoroughly the spirit of Greek tragedy than any other work of modern fiction. The mill and the part it plays in the life of the Tulliver family and in Maggie's sorrows are like great fate in the Greek tragedy. It is an embodiment of the hard and unrelenting tyranny of the powers that are. Even in Silas Marner, the most artistic and least doctrinaire of her novels, the moral process of remedying Silas's social unfitness and misanthropy is the central idea. Space will not allow us to give further illustrations of this idea in her novels, but enough has been said to enable the reader to test it and follow it up for himself. The two most striking qualities in George Eliot as a writer are her humour and her sympathy. They are realty connected with one another. The power of intellectual observation, when coupled with the power of feeling sympathy, produces humour. The purely intellectual or objective cast of mind produces wit, while the purely subjective habit of mind is unable to produce either. But with all her wide range of sympathy, upon which we have been dwelling, its limitations can still be discerned. The careful observer will recognise that the subjective attitude of the woman cannot wholly be hidden from view. The chief women into whom she projects herself are, after all, those that are nearest to herself, and she cannot help treating them as favourites and bestowing the greater attention upon them. Daniel only exists as a creation to develop Gwendolyn. Nay, Savonarola is really constructed for Romola's spiritual development, Casorban for Dorothea and so on. A still more marked and important limitation in her sympathies arising out of her ethical bias is her pronounced dislike to all morbid art, all that is fantastic, the poetry of Byron, the music of Chopin. All forms of morbid sentiment are so repulsive to her nature that she cannot treat them with tolerance or even with humour Remarks on Esther in Felix Holt bear this out. Probably this is an autobiographical touch, and having freed herself from these morbid tendencies in her youth, she could never look back upon them with tolerance. Her seriousness and ethical bias may at times also have impaired her style. Her extensive studies in science and philosophy often make her ponderous in thought and in expression. The fondness with which she takes her similes from science is often confusing to the reader who is unfamiliar with the facts and thoughts that are used as illustrations. She never quite overcame the temptation to insert what was new and striking to herself, so that her science and philosophy never reached that mature stage of mental assimilation in which they manifest themselves merely in the general fullness of thought, without ever asserting themselves as science or as philosophy. Still, no writer of fiction has ever introduced reflections and episodes in Propria persona, which are so striking and well worth reading in themselves. When her imitators attempt this, they fail signally, and one need but compare such passages with those of George Eliot to realise her greatness as a writer and as a thinker. To sum up the estimate of George Eliot as a novelist, we would say that she is the greatest representative of the analytical and psychological school, fixing with truth and sensuousness the types of English provincial life, with a final purpose, which she achieved, of illustrating by them the ideals of social ethics for the wider life of humanity.
Charles Waldstein. End of section 29. Recording by Cal Brummie.